One more time, Lord, we come before you. We ask you for your blessing. Lord, I just ask you to guide my thoughts and my mind, and may the words that proceed from my mouth, may they be your words, Lord, your words of encouragement, your words of love. Draw us near, Lord. We need to be drawn near to you. Desperately, we need to be drawn near to you. Help us to have a perspective of this world, the same perspective that Paul had, Lord, and the same perspective that he had of you. So just guide us now into your, your perfect truth. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All righty. So Philippians. Um, so you guys know where Philippi is, right? You all remember where that is? Kind of on the... Paul left from uh, the very western end of Asia Minor. And he, he jumped a boat, and he went across the little bay there to, to uh, the area of Philippi. Uh, and so that's where, that's, that's the region that he went to, and that's who he's writing to in this book. So just a little background to try to get to, you know, from where he started to, um, you know, chapter 3. Uh, there's a lot that happens in there, and this is a, this is a, a very exhaustive book. <laughs> um, there's so many, so many nuggets in this book that it's just uh, hard to go over all of it. But anyway, I really wanted to try to concentrate on chapter 3. But anyways, so we know that Paul was on his second missionary journey when he uh, was traveling through Asia Minor. And as he was traveling through Asia Minor, they were trying to decide where they go. And the Spirit, if you remember, the Spirit forbade them to, speak, to, to preach the gospel in the region they were in. And so he looked for another area, and he went to go north. And I got up there again. The, the Spirit forbid him to preach the gospel in that, that region. And, and so they, they moved on. And then Paul had a vision. If you remember, I'm sure if you're familiar with the book, Paul had a vision of a man that was in Macedonia who called to him and said, hey, come over here. And so they, they took the boat across. And they I believe they ended up in Troas. And then from there, they. They uh, made their way to Philippi. And as uh, Paul's custom was, he always wanted to, to preach the word, preach the gospel, and he typically went to um, the synagogues, right, when, uh, to, to, um, to teach in the synagogue. But it turns out that there was no synagogue in, in uh, Philippi, as far as we know, because he ended up meeting a group of ladies by the river, one of them being Lydia, right? So you remember Lydia, right? And so he <clears throat> proclaims the, the gospel, and Lydia was a righteous woman to begin with, but he preaches the gospel, and, and Lydia accepts um, uh, Jesus as her savior, and, and then her whole household is converted, okay? So that begins the first church in Europe, all right? And so that was the first place that, Paul kind of reached in the, the European area. It would have been the very eastern, obviously, end of Europe. And so he has a, a dear place in his heart for the, the Philippian church, uh, as you probably already know. But anyway, so he's, um, he's in Philippi, and he's, he's preaching, and he's doing, going about his business, as Paul typically did. And as he was going through the area of Philippi, you remember there was this slave girl that would follow them around, right? He's with Silas, by the way, um, at this point in time. I think he picked up Timothy by now also. And, uh, and, and of course, Luke. Um, just as a side note, if you remember, Pastor, it was talking about Luke and when he penned different books. And he went to the very end of the book of Acts. And it said Paul was in church under uh, church house arrest by the by the Romans at the very end of the book of Acts. Well, he's in house he's a house arrest, and so he, it's th this point in time while uh, Luke was writing the book of Acts, Paul's writing the four prison epistles, right? So it would be Philip, uh, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. Um, and so that's, this is where this gets penned. So it's not until quite a while later when I guess you would call that Paul's fourth missionary journey as he's taken to, uh, as he's taken to Rome. Okay. So anyway, so he's, uh, he is um, going around Philippi during his second missionary journey. 
They're being followed around by the slave girl, and the slave girl is doing what? These men, they speak of the, right, the most high God. They speak of it. And, and, and so, you know, we don't know how she was saying that. We don't know if, you know, that was just the enemy that was trying to maneuver his way in, as he typically likes to, or if she was saying it in a mocking way. <laughs> These guys, they're proclaiming the most high God. What a joke. You know, we don't really know how she was doing that, but nonetheless, after a, a period of time, uh, Paul got a little frustrated with it, and, and he turned and he cast out the demon. Um, and so she was actually, you know, spared of that demon any further, but her owners, uh, you know, they were profiting off her, right? And they didn't particularly care for the fact that now Paul has just cast her out. And so, um, and so they go to the magistrates and they cause a ruckus. And next thing you know, Paul and, Paul and Silas end up in the inside of a Philippian jail uh, in, in a dungeon in chains. And, uh, and they're also beaten. So they're, they're beaten and they're uh, thrown into jail. And you can remember the story. So, you know, there's a great earthquake. The Lord causes a great earthquake. All the cells are open, chains are loosed, and the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself because he thinks that, you know, all the prisoners have escaped, and he's going to fall on his sword and kill himself. And then Paul's like, no, 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 we're all here. We haven't left. And so, uh, so then the Philippian jailer <laughs> gets saved, right? So, uh, so anyways, uh, and, you know, Paul and Silas were, again, they were singing at night, right, singing hymns and praising God as they were in the, in the jail that night. Uh, after they'd been beaten. So that's a pretty good encouragement for, you know, looking beyond our circumstances, right? And rejoicing in the Lord. But anyway, so the flipping jailer, he gets, he gets saved. And, um, and then the magistrate decides that they're going to release Paul and Paul and Silas, and they're going to let them go and they want to do it secretively. And then Paul says, you have beaten us uncondemned Jews. Or Romans, sorry, uncondemned Romans, and they're like, oh, uh oh, uh, and so the you know, the guy goes and he tells the magistrate, um, uh, this guy's a Roman, and uh, so he comes back and he says, oh yeah, so Roman, I was, uh, you know, I earned my my citizenship. Paul's like, I'm freeborn, and so now they're awful kind of worried because here they have a, they have just beaten this uh, this uh, Roman uh, citizen and. And, uh, and they wanted to let him go quietly. And Paul's like, no, 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 you're going to come here and you're going to, you're going to let us go. You're going to walk us out and it's not going to be uh, you know, secretive. Anyway, so that's kind of the backdrop of, of uh, Paul's you know, time, that, that, that first encounter with Philippi. Um, he did go back to Philippi in, during his third missionary journey, but it doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what happened in that third missionary journey. And so we do know that he went because it lists that he went there. Don't know a whole lot about it, but obviously he went back to the Philippi, again, a very close church uh, to him. Um, what else do we want to say about Philippians? So he wrote this book, I said that, in his second, or in his uh, house imprisonment in Rome around 62, 62-63. When he penned this, he sent it the letter um, via Timothy and Epaphras, Epaphroditus. I think that's about all I want to say about that. Um, so anyways, uh, but he has a lot to say to them, obviously, with a, a very near and dear heart to the, the Philippian people in the first church there. And in the initial sections of the book, um, you remember he's encouraging them. And through chapter one, he gives them encouragement. And some of the kind of the more familiar verses that you probably have got tagged in your mind. There's a whole bunch of them through this, through this section. Um, but he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so he's encouraging them through that, right? And one of those tagged verses. Uh, and then uh, he tells them that... Um, that all the things that have happened to him have actually turned out for the good, turned out for good. Uh, all the, you know, and, they, and again, 
Paul was very close to this church, and, you know, they didn't have email and text messages back then, but word got around um, fairly quickly, obviously. Uh, and so, you know, they probably knew about Paul's journey from Jerusalem. You remember, I don't want to get into too much, I'm going to run out of time to get to chapter 3 before I even get there. Um, but you remember he was on his way to Jerusalem, and then there was the big mob and the, the arrest and another beating and all that, and, then, and he then appeals to Caesar. And so it's actually his trip then he's going to go to uh, go to Rome and along the way there's a great tempest uh, there's shipwreck he ends up on Isle of Malta you know he's under arrest and so forth and so on and Paul's just like hey just want to let you know that all these things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel this has been a good thing this hasn't been a bad thing so again just in being encouraged by the fact that you know here he was in a Philippian jail um, during that missionary journey. He's praising God and singing hymns with, um, with uh, you know, Silas. And now here he's saying, hey, all these things that happened to me, uh, you know, this abuse that I took in Jerusalem and, and this trip to, towards Rome, having to appeal to Caesar, uh, being shipwrecked, I, uh, landing on the Isle of Malta, getting bit by the serpent, uh, so forth and so on. He says, I just want you to let you know, this has all turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Because he says, it's become evident to everybody, all the palace guard now, right? He's been able to preach the gospel to the whole palace guard. And not only that, that the brethren have become even more confident in their boldness to speak the gospel because of Paul's chains. You know, if he can do it, we can do it. You know, it's, 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 it's endurable. In, what am I trying to say? Endurable. It's endurable. Um, so, and he goes on, he says, some preach it from selfish ambition, some sincerely uh, thinking, or some supposing to add to my affliction, but some sincerely, some out of love. Uh, but then he, you know, he says, well, what then? Whether it's in pretense or if it's in truth, I, I just praise God that his, his gospel is being preached, that the name of Jesus is being preached. And, and it, makes you, it makes you think that, you know, sometimes you, you turn on, you know, maybe you turn on TV and you see some of these hucksters that are out there. And, you know, the, everybody's going to stand before God one day, right? And we're going to have to give an account. But people get saved, some, you know, sometimes from these people who are doing it in pretense, Right. It's, if you read God's word, it's God's word. And, and, you know, he tells us that his word will not return void. It's going to go out and it's going to accomplish all that was intended to do. And it's not going to return, return void. Um, we've got to move on a little bit here. I'm going to, I'm going to run out of time before we even get to three. Um, but then he, he goes on and he says, it's all this has turned out for his deliverance. And if you remember, he says, um, you know, for me to live is Christ to die is gain. Um, and he's talking about suffering, but to live on in the flesh is more needful so that he can continue encouraging and continue preaching. Uh, he strives forward, uh, even though he's suffering. He's going through a lot of suffering. He strives forward. But, um, and then he, towards the end of chapter 2, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together, for the faith of the gospel, and not any way terrified of your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, that from God. And for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, and having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now hear in me. And then he goes on, and he says, in chapter 2, he says, let not let each of you not look out for only for your own interests, but all also for the interests of others, right? Let nothing be done, prior verse says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than himself. Look not out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So that's what he's encouraging them. And then he gives them the example of humility. Jesus Christ he came. He is equal with God. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he laid aside his glory, came in the likeness of a man, and became obedient to the point of death. No fault, no sin. He's the example, right, of looking out for others to, 
The example of esteeming others higher than yourself, the example of looking not out for your own interests, but for the interests of others, Christ and his sacrifice and his humility. And then he goes on and he says, um, hang on, I know there's another one that I wanted to look at here. I know it's in here. Oh, yeah. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not just in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Another one of those key verses that we always remember, right? It does not say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. It says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I'm going to pick up a little bit on this if we hopefully get to um, uh, Second Peter. Excuse me? That was 2.12, sorry. Work out your, uh, in 13. And then he says, to do all things without complaining and disputing so that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that Christ so that I may rejoice in, the day, rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain. And he says, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad. And then he commends Timothy and Epaphroditus and tells them to hold them in high regard, okay? These men that deserve to be lifted up. Um, so that's kind of how we got to chapter 3, all right? And so now I want to pick it up in chapter 3. And I'm sorry for the brief, just, you know, blasting through that. Um, but then he starts off chapter 3 in verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Okay, so he says it's not hard for me to write these things to you to encourage you, even through my sufferings. It's not difficult for me to do this, but it is good for you. It's safe for you. Um, so let's, let's turn now to, to uh, 2 Peter. And I want to I wanna look at something, because Peter kind of said it in a similar, a similar fashion. Think about Paul encouraging them through suffering. And it's not tedious for him to remind them. So in 2 Peter, in verse chapter 1, verse, let's go to 5. It says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither, you will, you will, you, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. So, you think about Paul and thinking back to Philippians, and remember he said to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So this is kind of Peter's way of saying that. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance to perseverance, godliness, godliness, brother kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. Add all these things to your faith. But 
But Peter also says something a little bit different away. He says, be diligent. And then he says it again, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. It's kind of the same thing, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's a component, we don't work for our salvation, but there's a component that once we're saved, that we, are, we should be working towards, you know, Paul says, I run the race, right? I'm, I'm reaching forward to the goal. He didn't take an easy ride. No one took him there. He had to work for it. He had to work towards it, right? So, so there is a, a component of ours that working out your salvation with fear and trembling and doing these things, being diligent to make our election, our calling and our election sure. But then, as Paul said, it's not hard for me to do this. It's not tedious for me to do this. Peter said, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. That's the same thing that Paul is saying. It's not tedious. It's not hard for me to write these things to you, but it's safe for you. It's safe for you to be reminded, right? How often do we need to be reminded? All the time. I mean, all the time we need to be reminded. How quickly we forget. How, how often are you going through a scripture or you know, a series of scriptures, and then you, know, you get to a point where you, you might be taking a break or you might be done or whatever, and then you think back about what you just read, and you're like, you know, and, or, or sometimes you might be trying to commit some scriptures to memory. And, you know, you'll, you'll go over and go over it and recite it and go back and forth. And, and then, like, moments later, you're like, I mean, this is only like 10 seconds ago. How can I not remember that? You know, it's this, you know, it's a spiritual thing that's going on there. But we, the point is we, we continually need to be reminded of these things. We continually need to be reminded of God's truth and the fact that, you know, it's God that works in us the will to, to do and to will, will and to do according to his good pleasure and that he wants to add to our faith virtue and virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control and so forth and so on. He wants to do all these things, but we, we have we have to be a participant. We have to be a willing participant. And we can't be a willing participant if we aren't getting into the Word. I mean, my gosh, how do we expect to be reminded of these things? How do we expect it to be safe? You know, how easily, how easily the, you know, the vultures or the vulgars come in and, and they try to twist the truth. And they're so cunning. And they can be so good at it that we have to continually be in the word to know what God's truth says so that we can be reminded. And then, and then Peter, as Peter said, if we do these things and if they're in our lives and they abound, we will what? Not barren, we won't be unfruitful, and we won't stumble, right? Easy to stumble in the dark, very easy to stumble in the dark. But in the light, we can see. But we have to be continually reminded. Um, so yeah, so verse three, verse or for chapter three, verse one, he says, "Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe." And then he says, in verse two, "Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation." It's a very interesting terminology that Paul's using here, because. What did the Jews think of the Gentiles? Dogs. Yeah. So, so Paul's turning this around, and he's saying, you beware of the dogs. Who are the dogs you think he's referring to? Yeah, the Judaizers. All right, so he calls them dogs, evil workers, and he says, beware of the mutilation. So now the dogs, when he's referring to these dogs... Um, the word that's used for, the, for dogs here is like these ravenous pack of dogs that are just like wild dogs and they're running about and they're maiming, killing, doing whatever a pack of dogs will do to get what a pack of dogs wants, right? So that's the kind of dogs that we're talking about here. This, the word that's used for dogs 
can also be translated or also is translated as like impure men, people who have their own agenda, who are trying to get what they want. So, so you put them together and you have these impure people, these impure men with self-serving motives. And Paul says these people are dogs. They're ravenous dogs that are out for their own gain. You gotta beware of them. Beware of these people who are out for their own gain. Because that they're dogs, ravenous dogs. Now it's interesting, a couple other places where the word dog, you can probably think of a couple places in the in the New Testament where the word dog is used. You guys remember Lazarus and the rich man? Yeah. He, were pla- he was placed, Lazarus was placed at the gate of the rich man begging for crumbs that might come off the rich man's table. And the ravenous dogs would come and lick his sores. You know, we, we might read right over that and think, well, it's just dogs. I mean, you, you ever cut your hand or something like that and you had a dog and a dog would come lick you, you know, lick that sore or whatever? I I think it's a little bit different, you know, compared to a dog that you have as a pet that loves you as opposed to these ravenous dogs that are coming to Lazarus and Lazarus just wants some crumbs. He's right outside the gate of this rich man who has everything and these ravenous dogs are out there licking his sores. It can't be a pretty sight, a very ugly sight that must be going on there. That's the same word for dog that's used here. Now, you also remember, you probably remember, that at some point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was making his way up to Tyre and Sidon, and and a, a Canaan woman comes to him, and she calls out to him, and she says, my daughter is possessed by a demon. My daughter's possessed by a demon. Can you do something? And Jesus says, it's not right to take the bread of the children and give it to the dogs. So is he calling the Gentiles a dog? Did Jesus refer to the Gentiles as a dog? Just like the Jews would refer to, he called them little dogs. So it's a couple different places, and it's in, I think, Mark and Matthew that record this. But he says to the little dogs... Now, the word there is a completely different word that's used here for these ravenous dogs. It's actually like a little puppy. And he says, the children's dog, the children's little puppy. Now, you think about your household or a household that would have a little pet puppy for the children. Probably a really wonderful little dog that's running around wagging its tail, very friendly, right? And and Jesus refers to them and refers to her or the Gentiles as little puppies, little friendly little dogs. But still, his earthly ministry was what? It was for the Jews. And he says, well, it's not right to take what I've come here to give to the Jews and give it to the, the Gentiles. But she says, but even, even the little dogs, you know, they get to get some scraps off the master's table right? And he says, oh, what faith you have. What faith you have. Let it be done so. And so her, her daughter's healed from the, from the possession. So that's the difference between these ravenous dogs that are being referred to by Paul and Philippians and the dogs that Jesus was referring to in, the, in his gospels, right? So don't get those confused when you see that. So you're going to beware of the dogs. He says, beware of evil workers and beware of the mutilation. The mutilation. What do you think he's referring to here? Circumcision? Yeah. So these, these dogs, these dogs that he's talking about, the Judaizers? Or are they the people that are chasing him around and saying that, you know, this is a false religion. You know, you have, to be, you have to be Jewish and you have to be converted. You have to follow the law of Moses. You have to be circumcised. 
Maybe. Maybe it could be uh, Judaizers that are following them around that say, well, yeah, that whole thing with Jesus, that's okay. But, but you still have to follow the law of Moses, right? Now, we don't have any problem with Jesus. But you still got to follow the law, right? A little subtlety there. A, a, little, a little twisting of the faith. Just a little, little something to make you maybe get off the truth just a little bit, like we were talking. Paul says, it's, it's good for me to remind you of these things. It's not hard for me, but for you it's safe because these Judaizers could come in behind and say, yeah, the Jesus, the Jesus is a good thing, but it's Jesus plus. You still, have to, you still have to have your works. You still have to be baptized. You still have to be confirmed. You still have to, you know, you still have to go to... Uh, confession every week. Uh, you still have to partake in the mass, which is a, a, you know, a transformation, transubstantiation, the transferring of the, of the body, or the bread, into the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ. You still have to do these things. Was that true? No, it's not true. So he says, beware of these people. Beware of this. Beware of the, these people that come in behind and say, yeah, it's okay for you to believe in Jesus, but you still have to be circumcised. Now, he doesn't say circumcised, he says mutilation. Is circumcision mutilation? <laughs> it's a little different interpretation here because if you look up the word, and there's some other words that are kind of closely linked together with it, it's actually to cut off, to amputate castrate. Beware of this mutilation. This mutilation, this twisting, of the, this twisting of the faith seeks to cut you off from the truth. It seeks to mutilate what you believe in. It's not the truth, and it will destroy you if you follow it, if you would embrace it and follow it. This is not the circumcision that you're thinking of, this is a mutilation, a cutting off from the fold of God. Okay? So that's what he's saying. Because then in verse 3, he goes on to say, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. For the circumcision that do what? Worship God how? In the Spirit. So they are the circumcision. Now, he's, he's calling this Philippian church, these Gentile believers, the circumcision. They probably haven't been circumcised, right? So what's up with that? Because they're worshiping God in the spirit. So this is where we're going to go back to Romans chapter 2. <laughs> Verse 25. Circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. It's great. That's all you got to do is keep the law. So just get circumcised and keep the law. You're great. No problem, right? You can get to heaven by keeping the law. say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because in birth we're all separated from God, right? So, uh, but it's impossible. Nobody can keep the law. It's impossible for us to keep the law. So circumcision is profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. James says we all stumble in many places, right? In many points. And he also says that if you break one, you break all. <laughs> <laughs> so it's become unprofitable to you. If you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, 
Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is his circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but is from God. So in verse 3 of Philippians 3.3, 3, he says, We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in our flesh. There's no way we can keep the law. There's nothing we can do to work our way towards heaven. It's all a work of God. But by faith and worshiping God in the spirit, that's counted as circumcision. You are now adopted into the fold. Right? Amen? But just in case you think you can work your way in and you have some confidence in your flesh that somehow or another you think you can pull this off, Paul says in verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, now we're going to compare ourselves to Paul, okay? <laughs> now, there's only one person that could ever have confidence in the flesh. There's only one person that mastered the flesh, all right? That's Jesus. Jesus is the only one that ever mastered the flesh. But Paul says, just in case you think you might be able to do this, you know, instead of comparing yourself to Jesus, how about you compare, let's just compare yourself to me here real quick, okay? One who might have confidence in the flesh. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Blameless. Anybody want to raise their hand? <laughs> Blameless? We're going to compare ourselves to Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee, righteous, concerning the law, blameless. The man says he was blameless concerning the law. That's pretty high. It's a pretty high standard there. Um, we can all put on a pretty good face, right, from time to time. And we come into the, through the doors and into the church, we can put on a pretty good face. Man, that's a, that's a righteous dude, right? It's a righteous woman. She's so godly. But everybody inside of us, we have some place where we've compromised. There's some place in us where we, there's none of us that can say, blameless. You know? I'm telling you, if, if you want to proclaim that you're blameless, let me scoot over a chair, okay? <laughs> and if I'm going to proclaim I'm blameless, you need to scoot over a chair, or maybe even more. <laughs> It'd be a lightning bolt, right? Yeah. So confidence in the flesh. Paul, you want to compare yourself to Paul? The righteous requirements of the law, he considers himself blameless. But then he goes on in verse 7, and he says... But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost, loss for Christ. Verse 7, sorry. But these things which were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. That's a pretty tough verse when you think about it. Paul, who could have, I mean, you think about it, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he's from the, the kingly tribe, he's a Pharisee, 
concerning the law, blameless, trained under Gamaliel. I mean, this guy was a mover and shaker. He was upward. He was an upward mover. He was probably an extremely wealthy man. He was known by everybody. He was the man. He was the guy. And then he's met on the road. Lord, what would you have me to do? And suddenly, all that disappears. And it goes away. His riches, his family, his prestige, his status, his power, his pride, it all, in an instant, is destroyed and it's gone, taken away. And he says, yet indeed, I, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not worth to be compared. You can't compare. And he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. You think about that. All our earthly possessions, everything we have, everything we've worked for, our jobs, our our position, I mean, our wealth, everything we have. If God decided to take it, would be okay with it? Would we count it as rubbish? Would we count all those things as rubbish that I may gain Christ? And you think about that. Let me switch this around. And it's very convicting. It's very convicting. I would hope to you it's very convicting to me. Everything that I hang on to that I don't want to give away, I've exalted that and I'm kind of calling Christ as rubbish. That's hard. Paul says, I lost it all. I don't care. It's not to be compared that I may gain Christ. I count this all as rubbish. But what we hang on to, what we've put as an idol in our lives or maybe exalted above God himself, that means what Paul counted as rubbish, we think is better than Christ himself, which means we're counting him as rubbish. I mean, this is at least the way I see it. What are the things that we're hanging on to? And I'm not just talking about material things. Spiritual things, mental things, things that, I mean, all these things that we go through in our lives that we hang on to, sin areas, whatever it is. Christ is rubbish if we exalt it higher than him. Are we willing to just say, God, take it all? Can you imagine, could you be in a place like this where you could give it all up and say it's all rubbish that I may gain Christ, to have that identity in him, to be that close to him, you can have it all. Lord, if I can have you, you can have it all. I mean, that's, what, that's the road we are on. You know, it might be baby steps, but that's the road we're on. Certainly we came into this world with, and we're going to leave it with, Nothing. We're leaving it all behind. And then truly when that day happens, the day that we breathe our last in here, and it's going to be a, you know, the twinkling of an eye. I don't even know if it's measurable. It's like just boom, instantaneous. One second, one moment, you're here. The next moment, you're there. I, I, like I said, I don't even know if it's measurable. But, but that moment, that twinkling of eye, that moment when you move from here to there, this all becomes rubbish. It has no purpose. It has no point. It has no value. And you're going to stand before the living God. All this is rubbish. And that's Paul's perspective on this. I count this all loss. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And then he goes on to say, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He wants to, he counts everything here as loss that he might gain the righteousness of Christ. 
the righteousness that is needed, that, that, that moment when you surrender your life to Christ and he proclaims you righteous. Right? You, can't, you can't go to the party if you don't have the right attire on, right? You have to, have, you have to be clothed in his righteousness. If you want to try to go to the party and you're not, you don't got the right clothing on, you ain't getting in. You know, this is a black tie affair here. Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a white robe attire. You're right. Yeah, it's a better, a better analogy. But you get what I'm saying, right? You, you can't get in if you're not clothed in His righteousness. If you want to be clothed in His righteousness, we got to get to the point where we count everything here. It's rubbish, because we want to know Him. We want, we want to be found in His righteousness. It's imperative. When, you know, that, hang on, it'll come to me. Galatians 2, 20, where, where he says, um, I've been crucified with Christ, right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me. And the life that I now live on the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. And then the next thing it says, if righteousness can come by the law, Christ died in vain. If there is something that we could do to get us there, Jesus didn't need to die. So do we want to be clothed in our righteousness from the law, or do we want to be clothed in his righteousness? And that's what Paul is saying. Count all this stuff rubbish so that I can gain his righteousness through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And then verse 10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection Paul is praying. He has, a, he has a, a couple prayers that he prays in the other prison epistles, Ephesians and Colossians. And I get them mixed up. They're very similar. Um, but at one point he prays that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in us. It's working in us. The same power. Which one is that? Anybody remember? Is it Colossians or is it Ephesians? It's one of the two in his, one of his opening prayers there. Um, but nonetheless, the same power, that resurrection power, that power that rose Jesus from the dead is working in us who believe. That's a lot of power. You think about that. If that same power is working in us, then we should have the power to pretty much endure anything. Right? We, we should have the power to, okay, that's tempting, but no. And that's a very simple one, right? Power that raises us from the dead. The power to say no. The power to walk on. The power to continue. The power to persevere. The power to know the truth. The power to say, okay, uh, as Peter said, uh, to add to my faith virtue. I, I need to be a virtuous person, don't I? Do, do, do we not all need to be virtuous people? We should be, I should be able to look at all you guys, and if we're having a discussion about whatever, that, hey, that's a virtuous person. I got no reason to not believe what they're trying to tell me or, or that they're sincere. They're a virtuous person. Or if someone comes and says, well, they, hey, they blah, 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 they did this and this. Whoa, 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 whoa. I know that person. That's a virtuous person. They would never do that. You know, to add to, to, add to my faith. Am I, am I doing that? Do I have the power to add to my faith virtue? Yes. Do I have the, pay, the faith to add to that virtue knowledge? Knowledge. The knowledge that brings self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. Do I have the power? I have the power to do these things. Paul says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. We have to have that transformed life. We have to have that power to be able to go through the sufferings if we're going to have the same power to resurrect us from the dead. If by any means I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. And I'm, I'm going to end it right there. I, I'm going to, I, I really want to go through this pressing towards the goal section here um, in our citizenship in heaven, but yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be teaching in the next communion, uh, which is coming up in March. So read ahead, and you're going to know we're going to go from 12 to 21. But does, any comments, any questions? Does this all make sense? Where Paul's coming from? To all these things that he was trying to encourage, this, this beloved church of him. I mean, it's the first church that was established in Europe. And these people, they, they, they were just, they loved Paul. They were sincere, genuine believers that loved Paul. That this poor church that really didn't have a whole lot Paul says, but you gave to me in abundance. That's how much they loved him. And he had this, this great, wonderful relationship with them. But it's all based on their faith in Christ. And now Paul's just trying to encourage them as he's trying to encourage us to walk that life, to continue. He's going to tell us to persevere and press on. You know, we have to press on. Keep the faith. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Oh, God, one more time, we just come before you. We bow our heads and our hearts. We give you thanks. We give you praise for your word. We give you thanks, Lord, that there is power, a resurrecting, resurrection power in our lives that allows us to navigate our way through this, this jungle that we find ourselves in, to, to know truth, to be able to discern when there is a, a subtle changing of the truth, a, a subtle lie that creeps in that tries to drive us away. Lord, when the enemy comes in, he tries to draw, drive a wedge between brothers and sisters to be reminded that we are to keep the unity of the faith, to esteem others as high as you esteem them. Help us, Lord. Help us to embrace your word. Help us to not count you as rubbish, but count the things of this world as rubbish, that we may know you and the power of your resurrection, that we may gain you. Lord, that's our desire. We thank you, Lord. Until the next time we gather together here, may your spirit rule and reign in our lives. And may you just encourage us throughout the rest of this week until we gather together in this place once again to corporately lift up our voices to you, to sing your praises, to exalt you, to acknowledge who you are and what you have done. Lord, to worship you simply because you are God. Until we gather together to one more time, open your word and breathe in your spirit and devour the sustenance of what you have for us through your word, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. In your precious name, amen. Amen. All righty.